We'll start in Genesis chapter 1. And in a few moments, I'll read a few passages from there. I appreciate uh, the opportunity to worship with all of you this morning. It's been very encouraging. Um, I think this is our biggest crowd ever. Um, Once again, Josh and Kirby are going to miss it. (laughs) So uh, thank you for coming for all your various different reasons, those who are traveling, those who are live nearby. It's, it's very encouraging um, to gather with people unexpectedly who want to worship God. Um, that's, it's, a, it's a great, great sense. Uh, I want to talk just for a few minutes this morning on the topic of evolution. Um, this is going to be a very short talk because you, to address the entire thing would take a week's seminar. Um, and I've actually been involved in something like that. This is a super, super small scope excerpt from that. Um, I, I think I, I need to address it because I have not heard much said on it lately, and yet I'm hearing a lot uh, of assumptions in the world that everyone accepts it even if quietly, um, even if they don't audibly come out and, and support it. They sort of behind the scenes say, well, yeah, that's, that's true. Um, and specifically what I'm talking about is the idea of macroevolution, not adaptation among species, which we see in nature. But macroevolution, what evolutionists term as a way for one species to spring from another species, something completely different coming from a species. That's what I mean when I speak about evolution. Um, and that is what is contrary to the Word of God. Um, before we get into Genesis 1, I just want to say, I, in my experience, I bump into like three different sort of groups of Christians with respect to evolution. Um, the first group is, I would just say, disinterested. Like, they don't really care that it's spoken about. They don't really care that it's taught. It's not a danger to their faith. They just say, look, it's false teaching that's out there, but I'm just not interested in it. I mean, that's, that's fine, right? Uh, a second group is a comfortable group. Um, maybe they even find the science interesting, but they totally reject it. Again, it's not a, uh, a threat to their faith. They don't feel like it's a threat to their faith. It doesn't undermine their belief in God. They're comfortable with it. They're comfortable talking to people about it who are non-Christians. They're comfortable talking um, to scientists or anyone. Even if they don't understand the topic, they'll engage in a conversation about it. They're just comfortable with the idea uh, as it being a false teaching. And it doesn't sort of threaten them. Uh, the third group, I would say, is the, a fearful group. Um, they know it's out there, and they don't want to read anything about evolution, and they don't want to watch a TV show about evolution, and they don't want to talk to anybody about evolution because it really does like frighten them. Their, their lack of understanding maybe is part of the fright, but also they think, wow, man, the arguments they make are really good, and this is troubling my faith. This is disturbing my faith. And so I'm fearful of the topic, approaching it, of learning about it, of seeing it, of hearing it at all. Right? That's really the group I'm addressing this morning. Um, there's nothing about a false teaching that should make you fearful. Now, you should be fearful for other people's souls. You should be fearful of the damage that it can cause, right? But we have to have some kind of grounding in God's Word to have that courage 
to say, okay, I, I see this as a false teaching, and it doesn't frighten me anymore. And the reason I want to talk about this is that's the group that I was in for a long time. Like, I just ignored it because, you know, I came out of a science background, even in high school, focused on math and science, focused on, went to college, studied engineering, lots and lots and lots of science. I was trained, right, to build arguments in a certain way. You look for this evidence, and then you make this leap, and then you make this leap. So when I would read these articles about evolution, I would, man, these guys are really putting together very convincing arguments, and it would frighten me. And I would say, well, I'm just, I'm going to ignore it. I'm going to stay away from it. Not because I'm disinterested in it, but it, it's just scaring me for my faith. Right? Um, so I'm going to give a very short little bit of information about why you don't need to be afraid. There's no reason to be fearful. So let's see. What does the Word of God say about the beginning of life on this earth? Let's look in, in Genesis chapter 1, beginning in verse 11. Then God said, Let the earth bring forth grass, and the herb that yields seed, and the fruit tree that yields fruit according to its kind, whose seed is in itself on the earth. And it was so. And the earth brought forth grass, the herb that yields seed according to its kind, and the tree that yields fruit whose seed is in itself according to its kind. And God saw that it was good, so the evening and the morning were the third day. Now drop down to verse 20. Then God said, Let the waters abound with an abundance of living creatures, and let the birds fly above the earth across the face of the firmament of the heavens. So God created great sea creatures and every living thing that moves with which the waters abounded according to their kind, and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters in the seas and let birds multiply on the earth. So the evening and the morning were the fifth day. And God said, Let the earth bring forth the living creature according to its kind, cattle and creeping thing and beast of the earth, each according to its kind. And it was so. And God made the beast of the earth according to its kind, cattle according to its kind, and everything that creeps on the earth according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him, male and female, he created them. Now, if we don't put any stock in the Bible, then we have to have a different type of discussion, right? We have to study evidences or look in nature for the evidence of God. But I'm going to present this material as though this is inspired truth, unquestioning, unquestionable, right? That's how creation came about. That's how life came about. And if you'll notice in verses 11, 12, 21, 24, 25, 27, I tried to emphasize it a few times. There's this phrase, after its kind. God actually speciated life at creation. 
That is the difference between macroevolution, what is presented in society and schools, pretty much in, in anything secular today, is that speciation occurred by forces of nature from one kind. Whatever that kind is, one kind gave rise to many kinds. That is directly contradictory to Genesis 1. God created them in their kinds to multiply after their kinds. This is said about plants. This is said about animals. They were created, speciated. That's the fundamental difference. It's not hard to see. And it's taken me five minutes to get to the point where I say, okay, here's what evolution says. Here's what the Word of God says, right? We can all go have lunch early. Well, that doesn't address my fears, or at least the fears I had when I was younger. I was like, what about their arguments? Right? What about all of these really impressive, like, evidence-backed-up things they're showing in nature? Right? Well, I'm not going to address all of that, but I'm going to talk about just one. Okay? Um, and that is natural selection. This was my biggest, like, bogey stumbling block for me. When I was in school, I was like, I see natural selection going on. And these people are saying natural selection is like their big thing. And what's happening here, right? Well, you guys, you've all heard of Darwin, right? This is his thing. Natural selection was his thing. When he came out and said, hey, how do we get all these different species? He said, I think it's by natural selection. I see all these birds on all these different islands, and they're all finches. And they could not be more different from each other. This one over here is eating seeds out of a plant that it needs a five-inch long beak to get to. And this one over here is cracking nuts that it finds in some bush with a very short, thick, hard beak. It's got a very strong jaw, but it's a finch. Well, if I swapped places, they would die, right? This one over here can't crack a nut with this long, slender beak. And this one with the short, stout beak can't reach into this plant to get this food. So he said, well, nature selected them. Over millions or billions of years, right, by chance, a bird was born with a slightly longer beak. And it was able to get at that seed. And it survived, and the ones with the short beaks didn't. That makes sense. That's exactly what would happen. And then it, because it survived, it was able to pass on its genes to its offspring. Its offspring had longer beaks. So they continued to eat in those places where the longer beaks would, would reach. He saw all of this in nature and put together a pretty compelling story about how that happens. And he said, this is natural selection. And then he made the leap to say that's how different species arise. That is a completely different topic. That is something we do not ever see in nature. Like, it's not something, well, it happens maybe 1% of one-tenth of the time. It's something we never see in nature. Never. What you do see in nature is exactly what Darwin saw. Species adapting to their environment. 
And they call that natural selection. I shy away from that term because it gives nature this sort of personification, right? That becomes their God in a, in a sense, right? Nature said, I like you, I don't like you, so I'm going to kill you off, and I'm going to, or I'm, actually what they say today is, I like your genes, I don't like your genes, so I'm going to kill you off and keep these genes in the gene pool. Right? That's what they say today. Natural selection is not about animals and plants, it's about genes. Right? It's the same thing. Right? What they're really saying is the God that selects, the God that chooses and creates is nothing more than forces of nature. That statement is in direct contradiction to Genesis 1. I'm trying to boil this down as simply, as simply as I can because for me, that's what gave me the confidence to say, okay, I don't have to be scared. I can actually listen to these people who believe this. I can engage in conversations with these people. I don't even mean arguments. I really mean conversations. Like, okay, but tell me how this or explain to me how that without feeling like I'm losing my faith or my faith is going to be destroyed by this false teaching, right? We have to know God's word and what it says about creation. And then we say, okay, I'm confident in that. I feel okay about this. Now, I know what you're saying over here, and I don't buy that. But tell me, how are you getting there? You know, I mean, just ask people, how do you get from here to here? How do you solve this problem, right? The goal in building or having these conversations is building relationships with people who are different from you so that at least they can see you and know you and say, okay, well, maybe I should ask them the same question. Like, how do you get to creation? How do you get to the Bible being inspired? How do you get to the Bible being inerrant through 2,000 years of translation? Or you could argue much less years of translation, but 2,000 years of existence. And then we have opportunities to share truth and not theories. What has to underpin all of this, right, is a concern, not that I'm right and that I can prove somebody wrong, but a concern that there are people whose souls are in danger because of what they're being taught. That is really happening. I was afraid of this stuff, and I was in school 20 years ago. I cannot imagine, I cannot imagine what's being taught today. I don't have kids, so I don't know. That was 20 years ago. And it was just an assumption if you're in a, a university that you accept evolution. So here's, here's the one example. I didn't really want to talk about the finches. There's an example today that we see that you, you see crop up in discussions about evolution that to me I find really fascinating. And it's the, the sickle cell anemia Okay? There's a predominance of sickle cell anemia in people with African descent. Okay? And so this question is, well, why? Why did, why did these people have this sickle cell anemia and what's going on? Well, they go to Africa and they investigate. Well, okay, in these places where there's malaria, right, we find lots of people with sickle cell anemia and malaria. Well, what in the world is going on? Okay, well, it turns out 
that to get sickle cell anemia, you need an abnormal gene from mom and you need an abnormal gene from dad. And if you get those two abnormal genes, they're for hemoglobin, okay? But if you get both of those genes, your hemoglobin is actually going to be malformed. It's going to take your red blood cells, instead of making them discs, it's going to shape them into these hard sickles. They start plugging up arteries and capillaries, and it's very painful. They don't carry much oxygen. Well, if you only get one of those, you have a resistance to malaria. You get infected by malaria. It just doesn't hurt you. So the evolutionists say, look, natural selection has chosen to keep this, uh, this gene right, in the human gene pool in order to protect it against malaria. If there's some massive outbreak, there will be people who survive malaria. That's not humans becoming apes or apes becoming humans. I mean, we, I think, can, can understand that when you see a human genome adapt to its environment of disease, that it's not a new species. It's actually built into the genes. It's built, it's built into the genetic code. It's the same species. That is why I'm not so afraid when the term or the idea of natural selection comes up and people start saying natural selection proves macroevolution. That is patently false. But you can't know that unless you know what natural selection is and what macroevolution is, right? And I didn't know, and I was afraid of both of them. Darwin, natural selection, I don't want to hear about it, I don't want to talk about it. Well, now I know, right? It's a, it's a false argument. Natural selection is nothing but a species adapting to its environment. It's not becoming a new species. It never has, and it won't because God created them after their own kind. That was my example, right? It comes up a lot in studies about evolution. So, what is our response supposed to be then? When we see, when we go to the Galapagos Islands and we see 20,000 types of finches all doing something different, and we're like, man, all these finches, they're, they're perfectly adapted to survive where they're at. How, what is going on here? Well, I would suggest our response should be like Psalm 8, which was, was James read for us at the beginning. If you want to turn over to Psalm 8, I'm, just, I'm not going to read the whole psalm again, but I want to point out a couple of verses. Psalm 8, beginning in verse 3, I think this should be our response when we see something like that. And we see, or... You know, humans surviving malaria, okay? Verse 3, When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you visit him? For you have made him a little lower than the angels, and you have crowned him with glory and honor. You have made him to have dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, even the beasts of the field, the birds of the air, the fish of the sea that pass through, the paths of the sea. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth. 
I think when we see things like that in nature, even if there's no one around us to tell, for us to tell, we say, I'm amazed by God. I am amazed that you have created creatures that can be so different from one another within a species just so they survive their environments. I'm amazed that you have created human bodies that can be put in an environment with a lethal disease and show no effect of it. That's amazing. Right? That's verse 9. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth. I think that should be our response. But God also thinks that should be our response. Turn over to Romans chapter 1. He's not speaking about Christians or even believers, in fact, in this passage. But if you look in verse uh, 18, Paul is actually referring to uh, people who maybe didn't know, have any revelation, any special revelation about God. Right? Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness, which, by the way, I believe evolution is a suppression of truth. Okay? That's exactly what that is. Okay? Keep, let's keep going. Verse 19, Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes... His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. Now, Paul's applying that to people who have gone off into all kinds of immorality, right? But the same thing applies to us. The expectation that God had of those people is the same expectation He has of us. Look into creation. And, again, I don't know if this is Paul or if this is what God intends, but there's always these paradoxes, right? Verse 20, since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, right, something that can't be seen, he says, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen. Well, okay. What you can't see, you can see crystal clear in the creation. So much so, at the end of verse 20, that we, right, forget the they, we are without excuse if we say, I don't see God. Now, I'm not telling you that, that I think you're without excuse. I'm telling you the Holy Spirit has said, if you don't see God in creation, you are without excuse. You're just not looking hard enough. Or you're letting somebody put something in front of you that's distracting you. Like, oh, look over here. That should be our response. I see God in everything. I see his eternal power and I see his divine nature in everything he's created. 
And if you can't say that truthfully, right, well, just look harder. Spend some more time. I mean, it's not something that you're born with, right? He says you have to see it. You have to see it. As I said at the beginning, I approach this lesson as though all of this that we're reading and written is true, which I believe it is. But it comes down to whether or not, really what it boils down to is whether or not we believe Jesus was raised from the dead. If he was not raised from the dead, I mean, why would you base your life on a book that claims that? It'd be, like Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, it would be pathetic. I mean, the, the true definition of the word, right? We, of all men, would most to be pitied if we're basing our lives on something that is a lie. Well, the same thing goes for creation. Why would, why would I stand up and argue for creation against what other people are saying if, if I don't live or believe that Jesus, live as or believe that Jesus was raised from the dead? Well, it's just pointless. It's just getting into an argument for getting into an argument's sake. But he was raised from the dead. This is the word of God. It is true. And that means we're responsible to it, for responding to it, for upholding it, and for knowing it. The primary way of living as though Jesus was raised from the dead right, is responding to the gospel. Right? When he says, you have sinned and you need to be cleansed. Right? Well, the proof of that is the resurrection. That him saying that is true and it's real. If there's anything here, uh, anyone here who has anything in their lives that you see as an obstacle, like this is really, this is causing me to not live as though Jesus was raised from the dead. Whether you have confessed him and repented of your past life and been baptized for the forgiveness of sins, and you're still, you're, you're still not living as though he was raised. Or you've never done those things, and you need that forgiveness. I mean, we're here to help with that. I mean, we can sit down and study the Bible. We're going to sing a song right now that serves as a, we call it an invitation song. But it's, it's really a, a method for us to communicate to everyone here uh, that Jesus is inviting you to get that burden out of your life. And that we're here to help you with that. So, if there's something you need, please let someone here know as we stand and sing.